Welcome to the Positively Past, Positively Present podcast. My name is Kat Lowe, and I'm a researcher practitioner in the field of arts and health, and I've been collaborating with Positively UK since 2016. This series of podcasts came about through a project we've been doing looking at Positively Women's archive, where we've been looking at the power of the archive to allow us to look back in order to be able to move forward. On the podcast each week, we'll speak with different guests who have been connected with Positively UK, both past and present. We explore different themes relating to the experience of women living with HIV. All of these have been recorded online as we wanted to include a wide range of voices, both safely and across borders. The nature of these conversations cover topics that some listeners might find difficult. So we invite you to please consult the episode's show notes before listening to the podcast. And finally, huge thanks to colleagues both at Positively UK and the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama who've helped bring these podcasts together. We hope you find these discussions illuminating and insightful. Today I'm joined by Carolyn Williams and Fiona Pettit. Carolyn was the first peer volunteer at Positively Women and is both a beadwork artist and a former international model. She's a member of the Bead Workers Guild and is a grandmother of seven. Fiona is currently a peer volunteer for Positively UK. In the past, she has been a trustee and volunteer for the ICW, the International Community of Women Living with HIV, part of the management of Positively Women, and remains a passionate gardener. In today's episode, we're talking about the histories of Positively Women, with a specific focus on peer support. So welcome and thank you both for joining us today. Carolyn, where are you speaking to us from today? My house in Truro in Cornwall. Oh, divine. I hope you're enjoying this lovely weather. And you, Fiona, where are you speaking to us from? I'm in East London, sitting in my living room, looking at my lovely plants on my windowsill. Amazing. I'm sitting in my shed at the bottom of my garden in Hertfordshire with and watching the, the squirrels antagonise next door neighbour's cats. So we're all good all happening here. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you about what your connection is with Positively Women. How did you hear about the organisation? Carolyn? I was diagnosed in 1993 and I knew someone that has since passed, I think, Lee? Yes. I went up to her and she told me about the organisation and that's how I found out and I joined in 1993, I think it was. Thank you. And you, Fiona, how did you hear about Positively Women? Um, Well, in the early 90s, when I was diagnosed, I thought I could go it alone and that I didn't need any help because my hospital, uh, the counsellor at my hospital had um, recommended that I go to one of the organisations like Positively Women. But I, I thought that I was coping all right until there came a point when I thought, no, I'm not, you know, about three months in, it was like, I need to go and speak to someone else about living with HIV. So I sort of phoned up and made an appointment to go there and yeah, and then started going to, to the support groups that ran once a week in the evenings. Brilliant. Thank you. 
Carolyn, as I understand it, you were the first peer volunteer, the first woman to be living with HIV to act as a, as a peer support for other women living with HIV. Could you share why you think it's important to have a woman living with HIV support other women who are also living with HIV? You know, now it's a bit, it's not as crazy, this illness, but it carries such stigma and being able to share with another woman, you know, and meeting a whole bunch of women at Positively Women was a great gift, you know, and they supported me. And I think it's very important, you know, and I, I mean, I didn't tell my family for quite a long time, you know, and it was just nice to be able to go there and share everything. And, you know, it was really quite a scary time too, before the treatments, you know. Yeah, we were all together as a group and every week someone would die or something would happen. It was an unbelievable time, but it was very vital to to be a part of that organization at that time. You started attending in 1993. Is that correct? 1993. Yeah. And we have we would have it in the downstairs in the big room at the organization. And it was lovely in those days. You'd have therapies, they'd have massage therapists, we'd have a meal, we'd all hang together. It was just an incredible time, yeah. And Fiona, do you remember meeting Carolyn when you joined? Yes, I would have met Carolyn in in the sort of early days. Yes, of course, I remember Carolyn very well, and we sort of met met recently too. And I think what you're saying, Carolyn, is so important. Is where I felt it was so important being able to go somewhere where there were other women who who were on the same wavelength as me. So, and we would share a lot of. Uh, strategies for how we were coping with HIV and it was just a sort of lovely warm environment to be in as well and and to sort of help cope with as you say Karen the, the, the terrible loss of some friends who we had maybe met in the group and and you know you, you saw them declining and then sort of finally passing away so it was it was vital and I think such services are still vital sort of now because even with with the developments of the treatments that help us live so much longer than i sort of ever anticipated it must still be a massive shock to be diagnosed with hiv to have other women around who maybe were diagnosed a long time ago were diagnosed recently so having a whole mix of, of women at different stages in their journey with hiv helps because if you're talking to someone who's newly diagnosed and can say well I've been living with HIV for 30 years or whatever and you know to give someone that example that there is hope after diagnosis. I think there's that very much that offer of and the example that you demonstrate with your your longevity I think would be hugely important for someone who's been recently Mm. diagnosed You've both mentioned um, in passing in the past or just in other conversations about the advent of treatment and the starting of treatment. I understand at the beginning, treatment was quite toxic. Would you mind sharing your decisions to go on to, to start treatment or not and talk to us a bit about that, please? I was diagnosed in 1993 and they said I had about two years to live. My T-cells were down at 90. I had my first AIDS-related pneumonia in October 1995. I was in the ward for two months. 
and they put me on drips and all that sort of stuff. And I, I mean, uh, that was it, kid. Then in February 1996, I was in for the second one and I was in again for two months. And the doctor said maybe I had about six months. Then in October 1996, just before I went into the hospital, I was in the waiting room up at Ealing Hospital and this girl walked in, this French girl. She'd been in the ward next to me and she was dying and her family were there. And she walked in out of the, and she looked incredible. I said, my God, my God, what happened? She says, oh, they've put me on these experimental drugs, right? And I stormed into the specialist. I said, wow, Dr. Lynn, what, you know, why didn't you give me these drugs? He says, they're very new, Carol. And he says, if you get your third pneumonia, we'll start you. And in October, 1996, they started me on the pills and I walked out of the ward. I was swallowing 16 pills a day for my life. And here I am, age 76. So of course I'm grateful, you guys. I, mm. you know, I mean, I was right there. I was right in that ward. <laughs> a miracle, you say. And I think you've both spoken to us a bit about that loss of friends and the loss of seeing people around us. How did you hold on to yourselves? What did you put in place what could you put in place to support yourself surrounded by so much loss? I suppose that's something that sort of motivated sort of me to to sort of do volunteering was yeah. to sort of do whatever I could to help reduce the impact of of HIV. But there were also, you know, there were sort of um, at Positively Women, they had a, a book where you could come and write the names of the, the women who you had lost, which are in the archives that the London Met. Because it wasn't just, I mean, I suppose it was the, the loss of so many sort of young women and sort of young men mm. who, who, you, who you knew, but also in the back of your mind, it was like, well, well, but when will this happen to me? How much longer do I have? The fear was immense, wasn't it, Fiona? The mm, fear of yeah. dying. When am I going? Yes. You know, and I had all my kids and they were 10, 14 and 16, you know. Yeah. And I, I thought I'm going to die. And, yeah. you know, it's a miracle. And, and I think the important thing is that after I got well, then I got into the program more and I, I ran the bead. I ran a bead group at the River House for the women and, I did oh, things lovely. at the group because I think you give back yes. to women who are suffering because you've been there and it's like powerful peer support for each other. You know, once you've, because we understand each other, like Fiona said, what we've yeah. been through, you know? Yeah. Yes. Cause I, I remember being at my hospital clinic and waiting outside the pharmacy to, to, to get my meds. And there was a young woman, woman there with her two, toddlers and we got to talking and she was fairly newly diagnosed and she was saying how she was so scared for her, her kids and she didn't know what the future held for her or for them and then I said well you know I was diagnosed many years ago and, and I'm on sort of treatment now and you know and she said that that conversation had given her some hope um, for herself and for her kids because she thought that she and her kids wouldn't be around for very long and, and that sort of thing so and I think that's something that uh, sort of made me think about becoming a peer sort of volunteer I suppose I mean because I, I saw a, a different side of things as well being with ICW then I saw how once we had 
treatment in this country that it was so painfully obvious that people were, were still dying in less economically developed countries in Africa and Asia and South America because they didn't have treatment and the levels of stigma were sort of massive against people living with HIV in other parts of the world. So we definitely saw that in, for example, in South Africa in, in the turn when the Western mm. uh, the Department of Health of the Western Cape and the Treatment Action Campaign took the South African government to court mm. and then and then to all of the pharmaceuticals and that massive change mm. in the mm. opportunity for non-patient and drugs and the big shift. But that was in the mid 2000s mm. we're talking a good 10 year gap here. Yes. Yes, a gap in which so many people became ill and, and died unnecessarily. Yeah. Fiona, would you mind sharing with our listeners your decision to start treatment? What happened? Well, basically, I just, I, I mean, I was very lucky. I stayed well for a long time. So for about three or four years, I suppose. But around about 96, I started to get really, 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 really sick. And I sort of lost something like, I think it was four or five stones in weight, which didn't leave me, <laughs> didn't leave me very, very thin because I was carrying a lot of weight. <laughs> so, um, but yes, and, and you know, the health issues I had were, you know, I'd go to, it didn't matter whether I went to an alternative practitioner or to my sort of, uh, hospital consultant, they just couldn't find any solution. There was nothing that they could do. And, you know, they so basically, and I just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And then I, I guess a bit like you, Carolyn, I spoke with someone, with Kate, who's one of the other speakers in, in a podcast. And she said, you know, I've been taking this new medication. And, you know, so have you thought about it? And I spoke with my hospital team and um, and they sort of, because I wasn't sure I was I wasn't sure whether because I was having lots of sickness and lots of sort of gut problems and I just couldn't see <laughs> how any sort of tablets would stay inside me yeah. long enough to to actually to work. work. Yeah, but I I sort of tried them and they sort of yeah and they really sort of helped a lot. So um, so that that was my decision. I was really at the edge, pushed to the edge by the virus. And, you know, that, that, that's what made me take the meds. How many were you swallowing, Fiona? I was swallowing oh, four no. tablets four times a day in the beginning. And I was on sequinavir. So that was eight huge gel tablets in the morning, about eight, eight hours later and eight at sort of midnight. And I, um, and then sort of there were, a couple of other tablets. I was on a three drug combination, so um, I just <laughs> I left them. I left my sequinavir in the in the sun one day by mistake, <laughs> and when I went to pick them out, they'd all melted. And oh, there was this huge clump of about sort of, twenty pills all stuck together, and if you tried to separate them, the medicine inside would the liquid inside would escape. <laughs> so it was yeah so it was a lot and it was I was really sort of rigid I sort of kept you know to the the dosage and yeah had changed meal times so that you know my lunch would be sort of halfway through the afternoon just to make sure I could space them out as exactly as I possibly could 
How have things changed now, today, in 2022? How many pills are you taking today? I'm taking two, which is amazing. And it's amazing for me because I, I, I mean, I said that uh, how I started taking meds um, sort of quite early on in, in sort of 96, but I'd also um, taken sort of AZT and DDC as monotherapy um, for short periods of time. And I think that may have um, sort of led to drug resistance before I started taking my three drug combination. And that's always sort of followed me, really, because I've had to sort of change drugs, change sort of medication quite a lot, because they would start to fail on me because I already had some resistance. So, um, so yeah, so to be able to be on two tablets now is great because sort of back in sort of just November last year, I was on four and it was you know, quite a big step to take, to remove two of those tablets and be left with just two, yeah, but it's great. It's It's amazing really to kind of mm. move and do you still have to be so regimented with your meal times or um i find it's easy to take them at meal times so but i just have to take them with my evening meal i don't have to worry about you know sort of taking them for breakfast and uh, yeah amazing but again i'm really really fortunate to be li- living and, and privileged to be living in a country where i have access to lots of different types of medication I mean, a lot of people in other countries don't have that luxury. And yeah, that that ability to have constant monitoring, I suppose. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yes. Regular yes. support and, and checkups. Yeah. Carolyn, you're originally from the US. Did you ever think about moving back to the US? No, my mother was British. My dad was American. I came here in 1970 and I stayed. I've had two British husbands and never a desire to go back. But it's funny what Fiona was saying about other countries, because my friend in New York he used to tell me that the people had to queue outside charities just to get the meds. And when this country, like, what do I say? God bless the NHS, eh? I mean, it's been unbelievable. And there, But the, America, the, a lot of people even there had difficulties getting the meds then. He said there used to be queues outside these charities and, you know, but then the Americans never had a great health care system, have they? It's, it's different, you know. But I feel I was, I'm only on three pills a day now. But what Fiona was saying, I was very lucky. In 1995, they put me on the AZT and I took it for four weeks and I was so ill, I stopped it. So I was very lucky that I never had that resistance. So, mm. but that wow. reminded me how lucky I was that I stopped it. But yeah, I mean, there's people still suffering that can't get the meds, aren't there? I mean, it's, mm. we're very lucky. We're very mm. lucky. So those experiences of trying new drugs, of working out what felt right, how do you negotiate, how do you negotiate with a consultant? Did any of that inform your work as peer support workers, you know, with the advent of treatment? What is the thing you most remember taking into your, into your work as peer support volunteers? I mean, I think anybody who survives this is is like a miracle. And then people say to you, you're a miracle, you know, and I think it gives people hope, you know. And um, yeah, if you survive, you know, 
because so many people died. And when COVID came out, oh my God, it reminded me of all that horrible time, you know, people dying and, oh, mm-hmm. you know, it was a terrible time. Mm-hmm. But do, did you see that show, It's a Sin, with about, I thought that was amazing. That really gave yes. people, I think, a bit more compassion about the virus. And, yes. you know, nowadays, I don't think it's, I don't know, there's still stigma, but I don't think it's as bad because people do know they can swallow pills and they're not going to die, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's a great gift. But I suppose, Carolyn, do you think that um, one thing that we can do, having been involved in going to hospitals for treatment and sort of navigating our way around the various departments in the hospital and um, and just having being sort of diagnosed with a condition where our healthcare professionals were so open to not being stuffy healthcare professionals where you you can have a conversation unlike if you go to maybe a consultant in a different department and they're just not used to having a conversation with a patient about about what what the best thing is for you and I suppose that's something that can be brought to to mentees peer mentees Mm -hmm. is you know letting them know that it's it's done a bit differently in the HIV clinics, you know, a bit like they're, they're part of your extended family sort of thing. Yeah, I agree with that, Fiona. Dr. Lynn at Ealing, he was my specialist from 1993 until he retired this year. He, mm. re- he was he was like a parent to me. He, I felt so safe with him. He saved my life. Mm. And I went in for my checkup before I moved down here in July and that was in February. And they gave me a condolence book. I said, what's this? They said, Dr. Lynn is retiring next month. And I burst oh. into tears. Oh, really? I ran in and I hugged him and I gave him a box of chocolates. I said, Dr. Lynn. He said, and he said, yes, I'm going. And he, he, it was such a special relationship, you know, yeah. and I'll, I'll always be grateful for that. And, and then he said, it's good time for you to move. And it's really weird because I was moving and he was retiring in the same year. Yes, that's- it was quite emotional. My God, you know. I mean, man, he was in my life from 1993, you know. Yes. Yes. Your your third British husband, maybe. Yes. (laughs) In a way. (laughs) Carolyn, you you talked about when COVID started, seeing so many similarities. Could you give us some examples, please? Well, it just, what frightened me, because being in the hospital, I had all those ventilators and that breathlessness. And I thought, oh, my God, if I get this, that's it. I mean, it just brought back all the horrible memories. But I was very blessed. I had my three girlfriends and we just and the isolation. You know, I didn't want to stay with my family down here because of the kids and I didn't want to get it. So my three friends, we went and we walked on the heath every day for three or four hours a day. I was always grateful for that. Mm. But it was the isolation and the trauma. And, and I just thought, my God, it reminded me of those days, you know, and. It was horrendous. Mm. I just was really sad, you know. Mm. It was really awful. Mm. I mean, and I thought, my God, if I get it, am I going to die? You know. Mm. <clears throat> and then three weeks ago, I got it, and I and I I didn't have anything except a sneeze. So I, but when that red line came up on that little box, I freaked out. I thought, this is <laughs> it, and it wasn't. I was so lucky because they'd given me my fifth vaccine a week before I got it, so I've had it now. But it was very scary, you know, very scary times. No, for sure. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And and you, Fiona? Yeah, it was incredibly scary. I mean, I I 
I suppose I'm because I'm linked into groups, sort of treatment groups like sort of the UK CAB, and they always there was always a source of information, and I just wanted to find out as much as sort of COVID as possible as I did with with HIV. I sort of ended up finding a course on Future Learn on sort of COVID, which is run by the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and that was fascinating and I keep meaning to go back to see how how that course has changed now that everything is is different um but it was it was incredibly scary and just not not knowing and and I think for me it was scary because I had um sort of some health issues that were ongoing and meant that I had to go to my GP regularly and some hospital appointments that I had to go to and it you know and it was you know looking on the bright side the buses were completely empty so I didn't have to worry about <laughs> you know sort of being close to anyone and with, with sort of COVID but um, something that helped me a lot and this comes back again to the support that Positively Women provided but also uh, and that Positively UK continues to provide. Virginia, who is the horticulturalist and who was running the, the seeds programme, she basically moved the seeds, uh, sort of outdoor, sort of healthy sort of gardening and sort of doing exercise and everything else, things that we used to do. Um, she moved that online. And so we, you know, it was great just every week sort of seeing people who I would see in the garden and sort of doing yoga and sort of doing mindfulness and, and everything. And then, and also Julie from Positively UK, she and Joyce, they had the mixed social group that they put online. They helped break the isolation a lot. Yeah, I think... The ability to be connected in a way that wouldn't have been possible. Mm, yes. Twenty years ago. Yes. Thirty years ago. Yes, that's right. Because you know, moving a little away from COVID. I mean, sort of being a volunteer back in the nineties, we didn't have the technology that exists now. I, I remember being in ICW's tiny, tiny little office with a fax machine. It was. A different world. And I think that's really interesting because I suppose one of the big questions is how did you get information as peer support workers? Mm. So obviously the ICW as an organisation was a key part in sharing that information, but mm. information wasn't as available or wasn't no. as accessible as it is now. No, you couldn't just pick up your phone and go sort of tap, 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 tap and access the web because I don't think the... The web didn't actually exist <laughs> because the ICW, that was the first place where I used email because one of our regional contacts um, was in the States at university. And so she was able to sort of give us our first email access. And that was probably early 90s or something like that. It's hard to think that we haven't had all this technology and that around for very long. It's uh, it feels like it's always been with us, but of course it hasn't. 
And I think that also then also contributes to that sense of isolation, especially if you're newly diagnosed and in a way emphasizes the importance of the need for a place like Positively Women, somewhere to be able to come and, and share information and realize that actually if you eat bananas with something that actually helps the medication go down, you know, those small everyday moments which actually make your quality of life much better. Yeah, but I think though that also both Positively Women and ICW had newsletters. I I think Positively Women may have done this the same way as with ICW, where we would, you know, it wasn't a question of of having a newsletter sent out somewhere and outsourcing the, the sort of envelope stuffing and stuff like that. There would be a day that would be chosen because the newsletter was just about to be printed. It would be arriving in the offices and there would be, you know, maybe four or five volunteers who would just sit there labelling envelopes, stuffing them with the newsletter and then sort of staggering down to the post office to send them off to (laughs) all four corners of the world. But I I don't know whether you you ever did the envelope stuffing, Carolyn, at at Positively Women. I I think they did it there too. I, when I moved, I went through all my old paperwork and I found all these magazines that I'd done articles for. Do you remember Body Positive? Yes. Well. And yes, I, I, I did. did an article. Yeah. It was called Triple Combo, Do the Mambo. And that was after <laughs> I started taking the three pills. And I came out with all these magazines and articles and, God, the memories, you know. Yeah. It was yeah. really something. Yeah. Well, because, um, you know, when you're back up in London next, you know, make sure you pop pop to the London Met because that's where Positively Women's archives are. Wow. The London Met, yeah. London Metropolitan Archive. Yeah, that would be yeah. nice. We could meet. <laughs> yes, that would be fantastic. <laughs> so, so we ask this question of everyone who comes on the podcast and part of this project has been working with the archive based at the London Metropolitan Archive and the Bishopsgate Institute. And we look through the archive, we look at the old materials and use that to ask questions of what it means to live with HIV today. Um, But so we ask everyone coming to the podcast, what are you bringing from your past into your future? Gratitude? (laughs) Gratitude? Yes, gratitude, yes. (laughs) I agree, Carol. I can't believe it sometimes. <laughs> now, now I don't want to die. I want to live forever, you know. <laughs> but just so grateful, you know, to be alive. Yeah. Have a family and, you know, still be here. And yeah, just immense gratitude. Yes. 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 Huge gratitude, especially because of the, the women who didn't make yeah. it. Because I have sort of friends who who passed away sort of maybe a few months before I started treatment, and that's always sort of very sad to re- reflect on. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there were so many organizations: the Lighthouse, Body Positive, River House. River House is still going. Mm. They're incredible. They yeah. do lunches. I go there yeah. sometimes when I'm in London, but. It, there was so much there, wasn't there? So much on offer that way. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I don't think, you know, with things like sort of massage, I I don't know how you know, sort of how much 
sort of commissioners or whoever funds HIV stuff. I, I, I don't think they understand how important it is mm. if you've just been diagnosed with HIV and somebody you know it's giving you a massage and touch. showing touch and showing that you know you're being HIV positive isn't an issue yeah for sure I think there's something in there about that we saw that taking away of humanity that we saw once again with COVID the importance of touch the importance mm. of the space um and the importance of of care and self-care mm. um one of our other podcast interviewees, Rebecca Mbewe, talked about the idea of self-care is actually selfless because this importance of having space for yourself and to be touched. And I think you're quite right, Kevin, mm. Fiona, the, the importance of those massages, those, um, mm. I remember I used to volunteer at the George House Trust in Manchester mm. and they used to bring in someone to do Reiki and all of that, that space just to, yeah, just to be held in a different mm. way. Yeah, because I think I mean, the, the, once I was diagnosed and started accessing services like massage, um, that was the first time I'd ever had a massage in my life, full stop. So, and I think that's something that I feel I've lost from my life is not I, I don't go for massage anymore. I don't do it. I used to do sort of, you know, all sorts of alternative therapies because there was nothing else available at that time apart from treatment to, to manage any opportunistic infections but I've, I've, I've dropped all that though maybe it's time to go back I think so yes I still get a massage once a month oh, and I love it yeah. <laughs> yes. as a woman down here this incredible in the town of Truro I go once a month I, I just love it you know mm. vital thank you both so much for sharing, for being your extraordinary selves, for allowing us to take part in this conversation. It's been awesome. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your generosity. And thank you for being here. And thank you for memories, giving us memories. the opportunity. Yes. And this is just a fraction of those memories. Oh, God. Really, there is so many. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, please like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. If you are affected by anything shared in the podcast, please see the Positively UK website for a list of their services and other support organisations. I've been Kat Lowe. These podcasts have been edited by Chuck Blue Lowry, coordinated with Joy and Solidarity by Mariam Shaharadine and Chriselle Ducuzin, music by Jessica Roach.